podcast. My name is Russell. This is episode nine, and it's a podcast dedicated to sharing the learning of community development, connecting its workforce and its practitioners, and promoting the overall benefits of a community development approach. And I'm in Penarth, probably the grandest surroundings yet for a podcast recording, Penarth Town Council in South Wales. And uh, I have the pleasure of the company of Andy and Mark. Hello. Hello. Hi, Russell. And we're going to talk social capital today. But before we do, what do people need to know about you? Uh, I'm Andy Green, launching a new social enterprise called Grow Social Capital, enables communities to transform themselves from harnessing the power of social capital. And I'm Mark Hooper, I'm uh, founder of IndieCube, which um, if we were to bottle IndieCube, we would spend all our time talking about social capital. The thing that Russell forgot to say, not only is he in Penarth Town Council office, he's in the wonderful IndieCube offices in the centre of Penarth Town Council. So these grandiose surroundings are also IndieCube surroundings. Settle plug. <laughs> yes, okay, slap on the wrist. In advance, thank you for your time. And I think what's interesting, before we started recording, and you asked about you know, who's, the, who's the listenership, who's the audience for this, and kind of gave a little bit of example in terms of sort of demographics and professional work and outlook and maybe politics and things like that. And then, like you said, some along the lines of we discuss social capital. I think that's probably what we do, but it's one of those terms that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, mean nothing to some people. And so I was interested and have been for a while since we first got in touch with our social media around maybe just trying to interrogate that term a little bit, pick it apart a little bit and try to repackage it in terms that maybe some people do understand. That said, I come at this from a more traditional community development background, so working in and with communities, helping them collectivise, challenge inequalities, etc., etc. But like you just said, Mark, you could, if you could bottle IndieCube, its essence would be social capital, but more in a workplace sort of context. Workplace and people's lives as well. Yeah. I think increasingly we're realising that everything's connected and everyone is connected. It's the strength of the connections that's important. And, and you know, this is where Andy and I started talking about this stuff as we were sitting watching Barrytown win, I think, with the first, my first game back watching Barrytown for 30 years that Andy dragged me to. And uh, and you spend your, the whole 90 minutes not just watching the football, but talking about social capital. A club that's owned by its supporters absolutely as one of increasingly more in Wales so where do you commit it from then Andy? Well I arrived at social capital because like most people you heard the phrase I launched a community project in Barry uh, where I live uh, called the Barry Ideas Bank uh, an idea of an online uh, platform where if you've got an idea to make Barry better you can go and um, in our phase one we learned a very valuable lesson that it didn't work so if you just have an online forum you know asking for ideas it doesn't work and it key insight we gained there was actually an idea by itself is just an idle fault. An idea is only as powerful as the person behind it, and they're only as powerful as the people behind them. So they got one to this whole issue of social capital, got reading people like Robert Putnam bowling alone, and realising actually that uh, if you want to create change in the world, create change in our communities, you've got to do it through people and making those networks and relationships work to uh, get the results you want and achieve social justice. And that Putnam book, Robert Putnam, um, Bowling Alone, the, the term relates to what he argues is a, 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 an indicator, if you like, or a reflection on the declining of social capital in, in sort of late 20th century United States, where once upon a time, though you had you know, thriving, numerous bowling leagues and teams, bowling was no less popular, but people were increasingly bowling alone. So it's a metaphor for every yeah. aspect of civic and community life with bowling alone. And I'd argue there was a barrier equivalent, we should call it skittling no more. So uh, I often use a photograph of my late father-in-law's Skittles team taking a barrier, a black and white photograph of 12 guys, but you've got to go out there, somebody's about 20 
old Rabbit 70, posh guy, not so posh guy. And essentially we've just stopped hanging around in groups like that. And I think it's a profound influence. And the, the photographs have been haunting me post-Brexit. Just think, well, if there have been people alive to much richer discussions, different points of views, I've been interested to see how things might have been turned out different now. Yeah, yeah. And that resonates with me because my local pub to where I live in Cardiff has knocked down not just its beer garden but its Skittles Alley in order to create essentially a larger plot for supermarket lorries. Specifically the garden and the Skittle Alley has gone so there's a bigger turning circle for the articulated wagons that pull in. And it just strikes me as it's, 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 it's the wrong thing to be doing on any number of levels. Yeah. They've articulated a wonderful example there. But, uh, so the issue is not only that uh, there'd be fewer people uh, skittling, as there would be in South Wales, but then there's actually the less commu- community hubs to do it in. So we've got a compound decline in uh, sort of the assets that can foster and harness social capital. So going forward, we, we face a, an increasingly stark, bleaker future of uh, people less engaging, not, uh, more atomised, more individualistic, a me rather than a we society. Mm-hmm. I, I think your example then, Russell, is really good as well, because what you've got is financial capital being more important than social capital. So if there was social capital being generated in the pub, in the Skittle Alley, in the beer garden, that's now considered less important than the pounds that come in to allow the supermarket to get their wider turning circle yeah. and, and we're all accepting of that you know we're saying that's good that's something we w- we're prepared to do but we're losing so much on the other side and because it's just we personally don't value it enough as individuals we don't value our social capital as highly as financial capital and it's not surprising sorry it's not surprising because you've got a situation whereby the whole world is set up in that way and if you start to say well actually di- different elements of capital are important to what we do or different descriptions of capital you could you could arguably start to create a different world and that's where my interest is as well in this started i think for this if we recognize social capital as important as we did financial capital we'd be in a different place Mm -hmm. indeed our world our reality is really influenced um, as a communicator i've always interested in the concept of memes of how ideas spread and our reality is not actually what is the best outcome, the most uh, fruitful, richest for the widest community. It's actually governed by what's the easiest. So you see, say, in a world of, say, uh, leisure, you know, you get less few people doing in clubs and teams, more to solo down the gym. You see uh, declining um, having a milkman because it's easier just to buy it from a supermarket. And I even say that even like the gesture of two fingers has gone down to one finger in my generation. <laughs> so whatever easiest prevails as opposed to necessarily what's the best. Mm. And really we can either just go with a flow or take a stand and do something about it. Mm-hmm. The, the Milkman example is really good as well. All of the, you know, this is, you can build real life examples from stuff that we do. You know, what role did the Milkman do apart from just delivering milk? You know, he also checked to make sure that Mrs. Jones, who hadn't been, you know, was an elderly pensioner, was being taken care of. If she hadn't picked her milk bottles up from yesterday, he'd be the first person to know. He'd be the first person to alert people. He'd also be delivering the milk more often than not, either by a horse in carting. Andy's smiling, must be an Andy's day. Um, electric milk float in my day. I don't know what it would have been in your day, Russell, but it would have been, you know, this is, there would have been a different, we would delivered all those, that milk in a, in a way that's different at the moment. And now we've got to jump in the car jump down to Tesco's, you know, in and out, buy your bottle of milk, 
buy something else. The, the true impact and the true cost isn't really yeah. put into the equation. But a lorry delivering the milk is now reversing in your form of Skittles, Harry. Yeah, yeah. uh, my grandfather would have delivered the milk around these parts as well, as yeah. it happens. It was a dairy farmer. Well, I think, I think that's, well, I think it's a powerful and useful way of explaining it, but I think, I think it's potentially a very um, useful one as well for people, kind of practitioners working in communities, because we get laden from, from government programmes, potentially, not always, but potentially, and from the, the demands of funders to articulate what they're doing in your outcomes. And it would, become, it would be difficult at some point, I'd like to return to this, to kind of go, okay, I'm going to increase social capital in this mm. community. I'm going to increase you know, the amount of social capital that's in circulation and to use maybe some of those terms that we use and we're familiar and comfortable within a financial definition of, of capital because it would take a brave funder or a civil servant in government to kind of go with that for people working with communities. But that is, in essence, what, we're, what we are, are tasked to try to do in a lot of these communities. Well, I was with a local variety this morning and uh, carers. If there weren't people standing at home caring for their relatives, they said the, the local authority would go bankrupt. So we need this asset within our society. You look at the most important things, important relationships, family, partners, supporting each other. The challenge we've got is that there's a trend to greater transactionism, that you know, everything's much more transactional now, but we rely on this uh, sense of obligation, support, and without it, you know, they say our society will be bankrupt. So in terms of the typology of social capital, Primarily, you've got three types of what's called bonding social capital. Yeah. So that uh, tends to be more about the sense of identity, so a commitment to either a place or a group. Uh, Post Brexit, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, uh, two tribes of what are called anywhere people who could, metropolitan types who could be located anywhere, and somewhere people who have a sense of belonging. And I challenge that because it sort of has a sort of sense of notion that somewhere, if you have a, an attachment to a place, you must be like a uh, re- re- retrograde, uh, uh, reactionary, right wing, or whatever. Whereas actually, you can have a very strong sense of identity in place and be proud of that place, uh, and still have uh, liberal, alternative, progressive views. Mm. Uh, so, but that uh, bonding capital is a very, very powerful asset, and it's uh, we're witnessing that. Uh, for example, uh, the example I share is that the Millwall fan who waded in unarmed to the terrorist attack at London Bridge. Facing, you know, but uh, declaring the world that he was a Millwall supporter and using much stronger terms than that. But you can see there how uh, bonding capital gave, enables ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Uh, it can be a double-edged sword as well. So, uh, for example, uh, I quote sort of uh, Sophia Lancaster, the poor girl who was a goth and was beaten up and murdered because she looked different. Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. asset of bonding capital is a very important energy and we, you know, anyone with a commitment for social justice, we should be looking to leverage that. So, for example... For a housing association, you look at every housing association website, they say, uh, in Wales, well, we're looking to build a better community. But I'm saying, actually, you're hoping to build a better community and a better Wales. Mm-hmm. So you leverage that sense of pride, sense of identity, again, to propel people, to energise people, to get more motivation in uh, achieving your goals there. So that's bonding capital to identity. And then the second part is where you've got bridging social capital. And that's where we connect with people like ourselves. So uh, I understand you guys are former Cardiff City fans, so if you want to connect with former Cardiff City fans, if you want to connect with people with a similar sort of interest, like this podcast in a way, we're brilliantly more connected. So we've had a, an explosion in connecting with people like us. But I believe bridging social capital can be dangerous in the sense that it creates an illusion that you're somehow connected to the outside world, when in fact you're in an increasingly diminishing a tightly knit but bubble of opinion of people like you. Uh, also, then you spend all your time so you're less connecting, 
And lastly, I believe that it's making people, while we live in a more permissive society, it's actually making people less tolerant. That we're witnessing a greater intolerance of you know, people having different views of you. Mm. And uh, uh, as I say, I think we're, that in, then kicks in in terms of enabling people to work together. So we had this explosion in bridging capital. So people would say, well, there's not a decline in social capital. Look at but that's just one aspect. And then that's counterbalanced by a massive decline, what Putnam observed in bowling alone, in uh, what's called linking capital. People, unlike yourself, uh, you connect with. So, example of my late father-in-law, Skittles team, a group of 12 guys coming together, different backgrounds, different interests, but all working to a common goal and all sharing the same space. Mm. Uh, my sort of definition of uh, social capital is that how we hang around with each other to help each other. As I say, I think we're witnessing a dramatic decline that with consequences like a great divided society, a one that's less tolerant of other views, one that, uh, as I say, is failing to come together as effective as it should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a perfect breakdown of it, and I think the Skittles team and the analogy, I think, is a perfect one, and it, it touches on, and it reminds me of sort of Ray Oldenburg's theory around third place, yeah, yeah. and there's a similar kind of, again, typology, that that, that first place is, is the hearth, it's home and hearth, yeah. and it's family, it's those close links. Second, intended to be workplace, for, for people, and I think for, for working class people in working class communities, large industrial scale places of work, docks, railways, steelworks, coal mines, etc. Third place with some of those more social, political yeah. spaces. But in the same way that that Skittle team might have had dockers, yeah. chief constable, yeah. high court judge, possibly not, yeah. but that Skittle's team, yeah. via that shared and common purpose, becomes a much more equal space for those people, and those hierarchies are dismantled. And they're dismantled really quite quickly and quite mm-hmm. effectively as well in those sort of spaces. That always comes back to me when looking at the very simple typology of, of, of social capital. You mentioned the workplace as well then, which is obviously something I'm really interested in. If we've got a, you know, a sense of the normal workplace is changing, and I think it's changing dramatically, and I think we're at the first stages of a, a changing in how we work and the way we work and the way we get paid for work, and all those things are all important. But there's something that there, there used to be a place where you used to go and you used to meet different people. You know, you used to be able to talk about things that you couldn't talk about at home with your mates and your colleagues in work. And you had something else that bound you together. If that's now changed or changing, mm. we, we're losing another massive opportunity. You know, how many people actually meet their spouses or used to meet their spouses in work? You know, the amount of people I come across who, yeah, I get that. You can say, yeah, I can understand why that happens. And now you can't do that anymore because you just meet less and less people. So Andy's point about some of this, you know, your, fam- your family may be the only physical um, re- relationships that you have with, with other people. You speak to people and there's a risk that you have these other relationships that you think are strong on social capital, on social media, and they're just not. You know, and one of the things that, you know, I meet a lot of people that I meet via Twitter initially, I get mm. in touch with them, but I also then go, you know, they say... Or I'm up in uh, Colwyn Bay, and I say, I'll see you tomorrow. Where are you then? You know, Barry. But this, actually going out there and meeting people and strengthening those relationships, I, I think is key. Yeah. And even, so you mentioned you were a family, so last night I had five members of my family in our living room. I was watching the telly, and all the other four were engaged individually in their own things on their own either laptop, tablet, or, or phone. So even though we occupy the same space, there was still this fragmentation, lack of shared experience, shared moment. And so, as I say, we're getting this atomization where we're getting like, modular individual beings, uh, where we, you know, say, connect virtually with people, but less can immediate effect. 
and I, I believe that's a, a less rich, poorer relationship in one way you're sharing and doing a common goal, coming together. We've touched on this before on this podcast. Some of that technology then enables people to articulate their voice, their opinion, their sexuality, their gender, their culture in yeah. different ways, to communicate in different languages in a way that maybe other traditional forms of community or their more everyday form of community then, let's put it that way, perhaps doesn't allow them. You touched on you know, less, less tolerance, and I, you know, I'd agree yeah. with that. So I think you know, technology often is a, it's a double-edged oh, absolutely. sword in that respect. Well, I'm, I'm, I never talk of declining levels of social mm. capital. I talk about changing yeah. levels. So you've got this uh, paradox. On the one hand, we're getting amazingly more connected uh, with anyone around the planet, and we're also getting anyone amazingly disconnected with the person on the same sofa or on the same street as you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There might well be a, an online sort of skittling game in the same way like in Call of Duty you can compete with people in Paraguay you can probably skittle with them as well I don't know but um, it's not necessarily the, the, the same well, again I use that richness the, the nuance of relationships and um, crucially it's like so for example you've got a problem will that person be able to come to help you talk about your street as well we, you know, we get out of our front door and we walk the 10 yards or whatever it is to wherever we parked our car you know, we don't, we no longer, you know, how many people actually walk up and down their street to get somewhere? How many people spend that time and, and energy? Because when you do that, you meet people. There's a guy used to, we, we recently lost a dog, um, which was sad for all the family. It had been a dog that we'd had for a, a number of years. And I used to walk it every morning to the paper shop. And I used to pass a guy who used to stand on the bus stop every morning. And we, we didn't say much apart from, hello, how's the weather? But I don't know whether that was his only conversation that he ha- he had every single day, and you know I don't know how important that was for him. I don't know whether because he was a str- you know he's an odd fellow, he's, he's an old man, you know. And these are the things that we just don't get the opportunity to. You know, he wanted he looked out for somebody to go who had this dog. It would if it wasn't me, it would be somebody else would have a dog, mm-hmm. and he would say, "Hello, how's the weather?" And it's that sort of thing. If you do that every day, you get to start to get to know people. You get to start to break those conversations down as well, which we just we just don't do because we're just in a car and we're off. It reminds me of a guy called Tom who was about must be in his late eighties, but swims every day at Barry Baths. And the amazing thing about Tom is that he, he talks to everyone in the changing room. And I've witnessed sort of him having two really good conversations where someone was giving him a, a housing advice, someone else was giving him a matter a legal matter. He may not be the wealthiest man in the cash terms, but he's very rich in terms of the connections he made. And he was telling me how he was walking out with his wife one day and all these people saying hello to him. She said, why do you know all these people? Uh, so that, that's sort of... And that, the worry I have is actually that you know, older people uh, are seen as maybe a drain or something. But actually, A, they represent a cohort with potential asset for wider engagement. And, and also, actually, uh, they're role models for behaviours that were in danger of losing out of this... Uh, uh, engaging with others, t- uh, small talk. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, I, I recall I, I cut my teeth in a, in a sort of like a paid sort of community development role on an estate in um, in Wrexham in North yeah. Wales. There was a, a scheme there that the I think they're called Haval now. They were at the time a National Schizophrenic Fellowship, and they were supporting people with schizophrenia with their own mm-hmm. individual tenancies, single yeah. people in the main. And um, some had some quite challenging mental health issues, other issues as well, uh, and often. Um, and there was one guy uh, there who um, was from Puthelli originally, couldn't read or write in, uh, English, um, Welsh was his first language, couldn't, with all due respect, read and write Welsh particularly well, but that was his first language. 
English nothing. Um, and uh, basically sort of found himself in Wrexham because of course as is often the way in North Wales and, and it's not, a, not, not a peculiar, there's other parts of the, the, the country for this, people gravitate where the services yeah. are located. Um, but anyway, he, he was he was you know doing okay on this estate, and um, the key worker with um, with Havel at the time said to me, he said uh, Rusty said, um, he's, he's taken a bit of a bit of a shine to you. I said, oh, well, okay, what? Why is that? What have I what have I done? And you say hello to him. And I remember at that point thinking, <laughs> this isn't that difficult, really. If you actually strip it all back, yeah, it's exactly. not that difficult. Yeah, and it was essentially somebody giving him the time of day to just say hello. Now. I was able to converse in Welsh with him, which I think was also an additional bonus. But these were people who tended to be defined by the condition that they had. And it, was a, it wasn't concealed that these were people who were being supported in this way. That was actually a key aspect of the service. It was important to kind of normalise these things. And we talk today about, you know, it's important to talk and, you know, talking matters. And there's all those mm-hmm. sorts of campaigns, isn't there, around mental health, to destigmatise it. And that's absolutely crucial. But we're going back sort of 15 to 20 years just because I said hello. It was remarkable how powerful that actually was for me at that time. A very powerful social capital tool we're advocating is the small asks. In Barry, I'm on the Barry Tennis Club committee. If I ask for a volunteer for a committee, you get no one. If you ask people, however, uh, can you put a leaflet down in your street? No problem. And just uh, just a simple asset of every business person, every organisation, What's your bank of small asks that we can uh, connect with people? So you go to the doctor, say, thank you, doctor, for my prescription. And the doctor says, before you go, can I give this card with some... And just simple little things like that. We, we can be a lot smarter, but first we've got to recognise the significance of these relations, the values of them and the power of them, and then also be smarter in how we can leverage that sort of power. Mm-hmm. That's a perfect example of how simple you could actually begin to develop. I want to use the word informal, it's not the right word but a very sort of organic then way of social prescribing. It doesn't require huge programmes yeah. and frameworks and commissioning cultures, but just getting those key people, because GPs are key people in that, exactly. in that sort of, those sorts of communities. Or even in an office, someone uh, in one place, they just got one waste paper basket. You're talking to your colleagues as you walk to and throw the basket. So I think you're right about simple stuff, but if you go, you brought up the workplace again. So we had big printers at our first IndieCube. We had one great big, huge whopping printer that would print all different colours, all different shapes and sizes, and it was a shared resource. And it was became very expensive, so we got rid of it. We said, I'll tell you what we do. When if you bring a printer in and you need something, and Andy needs something printed, instead of like coming to us for the printing, go and see Russell and make him a cup of tea in return for that piece of paper. It's, it's little things like that that then create the opportunity for you to stand there while your printer's chugging this thing out to talk about. So tell me about football, tell me about your kids, tell me about this. These small conversations are then what builds stuff. And then from a business perspective, people want to do business with people they like and they trust and it takes mm. time for these things to, to bed in and, and you can't change it. But this is all a choice. You know, the thing that we're, we're talking about, people would rather at the moment be atomized. That's the, the, it's easier. It's easier to be locked away, worry about your own stuff mm. rather than worrying about other people. You know, Andy talks about the stuff that he's involved in and there's a stack of other stuff that he's involved in that I'm aware of, and all of a sudden you're putting a lot of that this social this rebuilding our social capital is on fewer and fewer people's heads at the moment, and I think there's a real risk of a burnout of that. And, and the other thing that comes with it is that people need to jump into the real world to be able to pay to do the interesting stuff. So from my perspective, I think this thing is so valuable, 
I think this is the sort of thing that we just need to go and pay people to do and just let them get on with it. You know, this isn't a prescribed service. This is a go and have tea, go and have cake, go and have beer, meet people and make sure that it's not just the same old, same old. Well, the challenge about it is if things are easy, people do it. And social capital actually isn't easy. I was in a supermarket and I was looking at the queues where it's self-serve and the queues with a real person serving you, talking to you. And, there were, there were no, and everyone was flocking to the self-serve. And so uh, individually, it's a lot more convenient and easy. You haven't got any worry engage with a conversation with a, a another human being. You just go to this machine and you're out. And we've got to realise actually we're a wake-up call that with the, the advent of artificial intelligence coming in, the humankind PLC is a strategy. We need to be looking at how we invest and grow in interpersonal mm-hmm. people things as opposed to the other route where it's actually getting machines to do it and doing this all out of work. And the challenge we've got is if social capital was easy, it would be happening. It's not easy because it's about fundamentally dealing with people. People can sometimes be problematic, challenging, complex, mm-hmm. as well as obviously the outside of enlivening, inspiring and enjoyable to be around and therefore represent an uncertainty, a risk, mm-hmm. and therefore why not avoid them altogether in the first place. And also in the area of social capital of community change, getting people to do things is damn, damn hard. A uh, story to share is um, there was a young lady in Barry who, uh, on a Facebook group, put a photograph when she was pregnant of every month of her pregnancy standing in front of a different door number on the chalets at Barry Island so they could track her pregnancy. I thought that'd be a good thing to put on the ideas bank as a, a way of uh, creative uses of the chalets. Uh, anyway, um, in sales and marketing, you have a, a rule of thumb of it takes seven quality encounters with a, a sales prospect to land a sale. I would say in community development, it takes 70 nudges to get people to do things. In the case of that young lady with a photograph in front of chalets, even more Gordon, because it's my own daughter. And saying to you know, do you love your dad? Even that. So just getting people to do things mm. is very tough uphill, but nonetheless, if you want something sustainable and that makes far better use of resources, then you know, social capital is a great opportunity. And one of the challenges we face is that with using the engaging people, you've really got two speeds. You can either be lightning fast because you can connect with people and it makes things happen quicker, or it can be glacially slow as you've got a right for connections and you know, the result of 17 nudges to take effect. But uh, whereas if you've got a transactional relationship, you've got a known planned route, you've got a, what might seem as the least risk. The challenge is we haven't got the resources for those transactions and they're increasingly shown to be inadequate or insufficient. Mm. You talked about Tom earlier. How do we get... So I think social capital is difficult. I think it takes time-consuming, it's effort, it's risk, all those things that you know, people can... You can talk to them, they can ignore you. You know, how many times has that happened? You know, say hello to someone, they just completely think, what? what's going on? Is it me? Is it? You know, this is a tough thing that you get rejection from. But there are people out there who are brilliant at it, and they're often older as well. So how do we bring their experience and their you know, role model into life for other people? How do we show that this is actually a worthwhile experience? It's actually good for you. It's good for you to meet people. When you meet new people, I think it opens up different avenues that you would never, you know, the opportunity for serendipity that you wouldn't have if you, if you didn't meet people. You don't know where that's going to go. So is it something about the Toms of this world? We need to find a way of highlighting what they are, how good they are, how important they are to society. Well, I think we first we need the mainstream social capital. So it's not just a term that people may have heard of and understand. And then secondly, also, that's over Tom. Uh, I coined the phrase a young git. 
So he may be old in age, but actually in terms of his mentality, he's young. He's not. He's not. He's not got the. Uh, he's got a comfort zone far bigger than most of the people, a fraction of his age, uh, and therefore, so it's about reframing behaviours and not putting them in negative. Actually, celebrating and the highlighting actually that we need to celebrate because if you don't, there's a massive cost, and our, our world's going to be a poorer place as a result of that lack of engagement, that lack of ability to connect with each other. But, you know, you talked about the things like artificial intelligence, robotics, driverless cars. Actually, there's more and more things that are going to damage social capital, even from where we are now. For me, there's a sense of peril associated with this. I think that society is struggling to, to solve these problems. I think Brexit's a classic example of that. Trump in the, in the States is that you've got this, these dual... Um, things running almost in parallel to each other and not crossing over enough. And if that's how, what it is today, you've only got to cross this a few years' time, and I think we're very close to that. You know, I think the, the rise of the way that we interact, the way we shop, you know, already the way we shop, we don't need cashiers anymore. We've just got, you know, the supermarkets have got them just to not make a load of people <laughs> out of work. You know, this is, we could, we could deal with non-cashiers today. Yeah. Well, an example of Sport Wales in their last survey, they identified that uh, volunteers have gone down from 10% to 9%. And, of, and those people are actually having to work volunteer mm. for more hours. One percent doesn't sound much, but that's one percent of a very small base. Mm. And those people are a walking advert for don't volunteer because, and when they go, it's going to be even more catastrophic. And so the challenge we have is that we um, we have a society where we've got overall declines in social capital. My daughter had a baby. Fascinating watching her being like social capital and speed in terms of networking with like several groups of new mums and so on. So I think there'll be tactical responses uh, when people are in a, in a problem situation. But I believe, however, in a wider context in our society, we're going to have real challenges. Go back to community development and your experience as well, Russ. Is this something that... Is there a stronger sense of social capital that's still in some of our poorer communities that we're missing? I, and I wonder whether the city, you know, agglomeration, you know, the the metropolitan elite that we're talking about, are they less likely to have um, strong social capital? But will you see it more in some of the... I think there may be... Andy talked about sort of the, you know, the, the nature almost like of the transactional sort yeah. of relationships. And I think there's perhaps a little bit more of that then in that, that sort of metropolitan uh, context. I think, in my experience, in some of those communities, you have very deep attachments to place, particularly in the coalfields. Yeah, most coal fields. People that are born there, yeah. they live there, they die there, and that attachment to place can be a double-edged sword. Yeah. But the pros do far, far outweigh the cons. And I think, on a very practical basis, when you're trying to engage with people in these communities, that attachment to place is one of the things to one of the buttons to push, if you if you like. But I think I think in some of those areas, I think that it is being undermined because people talk about oh, the rugby club, yeah, yeah, but the rugby clubs will be drawing on those same. Yeah. volunteers in the same scenario that you you, yeah. you you referred to earlier Andy and I've seen any number of community groups relying increasingly on a smaller and smaller and older and older volunteer base or activist base yeah. and I think the worry is it doesn't seem to be valued by too many policies in too many places frankly yeah. different parts of the UK national regional local whatever that encourages those people to have the time to do some of those things which is what you were coming back to a bit earlier Mark because people will have responsibilities for families, just like those older yeah. volunteers and activists did when they were parents and were probably doing yeah. proportionately less. 
But unless there is something that encourages those people come through to come through and take forward some of these roles and to take on some of these responsibilities, then I think in some areas the social capital is actually very precarious because some of these communities are quite small. And mm-hmm. I said that's the that's the the con to this is that it's small estates, it's small kind of former pit villages, etc. That is a concern, and I think the frustration I've had in the last sort of few years working in this through a particularly sort of funded program is that what has been elevated to frankly the only priority let's be honest is work yeah and that people who live in these communities need to be in work yeah okay fine you've talked about you know how work can be positive for people and you know it's disposable income and it's routine and all of those things and that's fine but these are people that are doing things in their community and i think that the the increasing sort of definition or the risk of these people being defined Mm. as workers first and foremost that's the only thing they can ever do and then these communities on a broader thing and I know Mark and I talked about this previously colleagues at IndyCube have written about this and articulated this far better than I will now is that if you aggregate that out then in certain places let's say the South Wales Valleys or it could be pit villages in the north of England for example that these are just commuterville these are just sort of dormitory towns and that's a term that actually gets gets used in planning kind of policy and and, and strategy then I think it's just increasing defining these people in these communities as just fueling some form of sort of you know, capitalist industry, service sector, financial services, whatever it is. And what is going to happen then happen in those communities? And I think the thing that really, really, really hacks me off with that is that then the result and implications of all of that, declining social capital, yeah. how that manifests itself, those people then get criticised for that and blamed for the fact that that is happening in those communities. Well, I uh, coined the term non-isn't. So a nonizen is someone who lives in an area, doesn't use any of the local shops, yeah. facilities, doesn't partake in society, mm-hmm. vote or anything. And uh, I believe we were increasingly uh, witnessing a, a Teflon-like existence where people have no real connection. But as long as they work. Again, so I think that's that for me. I, I think this is really interesting. I think this is where some of these things... But bef- there's also this... The way these nonists, people who are you know working outside of their communities, who go in here, they they sleep there, and that's probably all they do. When they do interact with some of these services, their demand level is really high. Mm. And when people fail them, because people fail, they they just go, "Well, I'm not going to use you anymore. I'm not going to send my kids to scouts because they didn't have X, Y, and Z that I expected them to." Instead of actually going, "Well, that's my responsibility to go and sort." That isn't inbuilt in them anymore. You know, that's something that is they're, they're a user of services and they'd rather pay than actually put the energy into solving some of these problems. That's something that's coming in with this. Everything is monetized, isn't it? Even charitable services are now monetized. And that's one of the reasons we get charity bosses being paid so much as well, because they can say, well, actually, I, I could go and get my job elsewhere, but I've chosen to do this. These things are all are all linked. Mm-hmm. We've got hidden costs. You mentioned Scout movement. In other words, uh, I believe there's a, a 36,000 waiting list for kids to become one of a scout, but there's just not enough scout, uh, scout masters uh, taking part there. Mm. And I think one of the um, words I'm uh, aware of is use the word volunteer, because mm-hmm. uh, that again has a clear role of someone who's like over amateur or you know, it's somehow like over a middle class thing to do. Whereas actually, I just prefer the term bigger citizen. So it's actually about being like living a bigger role where you connect, you do things, you're prepared to do things at no cost to you that might even, might even have a cost to you, but it's all part of you know being part of this a uh, a bigger a bigger society. So I think Cameron was uh, wrong in launching the big society as a top down initiative and a brand that has really become toxic. 
And I think what we actually really need is bigger citizens, which is about working from the bottom up. We're uh, emergent from with people assuming greater responsibility for their own destiny and the destiny of their communities. Going back to work, I agree with you, Andy, but going back to your work point as, as well, you know, if we are in a situation where there will be less work, now, this isn't in policymakers' framing at the moment. They think it'll all be okay, we'll be able to train ourselves out of the problems of automation and artificial intelligence um, that are on their way. But if, if we do come, if they're wrong and we have a situation less work, then all of the, everything that we've just described in terms of the way that we value people is gone. So even now, you know, you described if people have got work, then they, they have a better value in society. All of that goes. So then what do we do then? And what is that situation? How Are we in a situation where this is going to get, like we suggested, is going to get much worse? Or will societies actually realise that there's, there's something more to the world? Because people, you know, how many people do we know personally who work their lives, you know, desperately unhappy and then die? And that's life. There's got to be something more worthwhile to things. And why is it that you wait until people are on that, till you're on your deathbed to think, well, actually, you know, it's not all about the money I've amassed. It's actually about all the connections I've made. And why does it take that long to do that? And is there something we could learn now that would stand us in better stead? And I think this is the, you know, I'm an optimist for social care. I think, we're, I think there is a peril, but I'm an optimist because I think the world is changing so quickly around mm-hmm. us that we've got to find something to hang our hat on. Now, while we're in a world that we still have to buy stuff, it becomes an issue. Yeah. Well, I'm not so much an optimist, more of a determined resistor that uh, <laughs> we've got to be assertive. I coined the term unsociable capital, which is, you know, you can drive in a car, so that means you don't go on a bus. You can order online, it means you don't go in shops. You have a takeaway curry, it means you don't go out of the house and meet free people, at least on the way to pick up your food. And it's all very convenient things, and I'm not knocking on it, but there's a cost and consequence. And I think we've all got to be aware of unsociable capital, and therefore look at us and it needs to be counterbalanced. We can counterbalance by asserting, uh, like being the toms of the world and can, talking to strangers, smiling at people, mm. making connections, uh, as well as uh, connecting, being part of wider groups, all doing, asking, uh, making small asks, helping, obliging. I think really from a, a million one small acts, small tiny gestures of social capital, we can create a better world. I still think there's a place for community development in communities and it's not just in disadvantaged communities it's you know it, it is across the piece it's really rural communities and things like that and there's roles like community connectors that are looking to try to sort of yeah. knit together the community sort of fabric and the mosaic of kind of different interests and activities that are taking place maybe across a rural perspective in midwells i'm aware of but i still think there's a value for that not least because i i do see how it's potentially difficult to automate that and you've hinted at you know this is the, the, the rise of the robots AI automation of a lot of roles <laughs> the, the cashierless supermarket and, and so on um, that's actually one of the few things I think it is hard to automate yes you can maybe migrate some of it to an online forum you know use of social media or whatever it might be yeah. but actually people helping people to come together mm-hmm. and to kind of inhabit those those cracks, those fissures that exist within communities, not in a negative sense, just the way that yeah. people are going off in different directions and attention is elsewhere. I think people that can inhabit that space and bring people together is still a, a, a useful skill. I think it's a necessary thing for a lot of communities to have of all levels of, of, yeah. of affluence and, and, and well-being, but then certainly as well within some of those communities of interest as well, where maybe you've got dispersed people, you've got multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic communities yeah. as well, multi-faith communities. 
creating those interfaces, I think, is still a skill. There is still an art to it. Community development is what can bring that about and do it well, non-judgmentally and so on. So I don't know, I think maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm okay in the rise of the robots when they come marching. <laughs> when, when Terminator 2 yeah. happens, probably not. But, I, you know, I think there's something in, in that. You look at human survival, uh, there's two key principles that no man or woman's an island. And as Darwin observed, the species that collaborate the ones that survive and thrive. Yet we don't get a GCSE, it's not done in schools, it's just done implicit, un- uh, uncoded, unwritten, and uh, it, some had let, just left to drift along. And now we're living in an era where there's more rapid change and more mobility. Actually, we now recognise that whatever society, even if it's a, a working class community, a middle class community, whatever, they actually need community developers mm. uh, because what was traditionally like uh, with inertia, with set structures, that's all being mastered. They haven't got that resistance, they haven't got that uh, structure to work around. And so we're going to need to invest. So in Barry, for example, we've had like 2,000 new houses built on a waterfront development, but zero effort, as I said, about knitting those 2,000 individual houses into a community. Mark and I are very keen on a, a role what's called a tumbler, that's T-U-M-L-E-R, it's a Yiddish word meaning for someone who gets a party going. So imagine a scene as a bar mitzvah, they've got the booze, got the dance, the music, but no one's dancing. So the idea of the tumbler is literally to get the party going. But what they do is, um, cleverly, is actually it's about using the energy of the people there to get the party going. Uh, there's a rival model, what's called the cruise director model, which is as long as the cruise director there, the party will happen. Whereas the tumbler model is it uses the energy and connectivity mm. and vibrancy of those people to cre- you know, create a momentum for their own party to go and keep going. And a lot of public sector and community development has really been using the cruise director model. It's great while it happens, but as soon as the funding goes... No, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, so the idea of a tumbler in a, in a community, A, every one of us should be a, a tumbler and extend to our sort of job description... But then there'll also be a scope for Tumblr, so Mark with IndieCube, co-working spaces, the heart of them are vibrant communities. And really the key role there is a role of a Tumblr within the workplace mm-hmm. to build these connections. And we need similar people in where people live in communities mm-hmm. to get that vibrancy going. There's a beautiful image called a Bonnith Camry, which is the rivers of Wales that um, a guy called David Albrin put together. And it shows that if you can get it up on your computer now, you see where yeah, you yeah, yeah, I know it. It's, it's, it's beautiful and it shows that there's actually everything's connected this is Wales but it, it just as easily fits across the rest of the UK and everywhere else that places are connected and some places have got stronger rivers the strength of connection is even greater and what we need in these community connectors we need these people to cross between different places and if there's a riverbed that's run dry they dig out that riverbed this is the hard miles of this is that some of these places have, had, have been left for such a long time either isolated or you know, isolated from others, other communities, but they're also isolated from themselves as well. So you need to dig streams out and dig rivulets out in, in the communities. And then you need to, to link communities together. And some of those communities haven't been linked, especially in the South Wales Valleys, since the days when we took a lot of coal out of those spaces. You know, that, that, they were linked then. There was, um, I was up with Andy in Wakefield a, f- a few years ago, this one guy was talking to us, there were a couple, and the guy was saying that his granddad used to work in the pits around Wakefield. There were seven pits around Wakefield. He lived in the same house all his life, and he walked to each of these separate pits. So he knew everybody in those areas. It just shows that there was a, there was a community that was bigger than just them. And he was one of those people who just 
spread. You know, sometimes it took him two hours to walk to work, and other times it was fifteen minutes. But as he moved around, and his, he would have been an example of this digging out of mm-hmm. digging out of rivers. But when we value that sort of stuff, how do we pay for it? You know, this comes down to hard bucks at the moment. If we pay through it through, you know, I'm concerned about the public sector or even some of the third sector organisations. What you do, you'll have a load of measures that aren't related to social capital. And what we really need is to find the people who do it. And there's, you know, there's three of them in this room today. We just need them to go out and just do what you do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know, <laughs> I know that's, all, that's what you do. You know, you just connect people together and you do it because you enjoy doing it. And you know other people who would do the same Ooh, sort of thing. How do we get those people out there doing this? You know, I'm a big advocate for basic income. And if I, if I had a test of how to prove the value of basic income, these connectors would be the yeah. first group that I would test. And as well, they exist in the communities that we are referring to, the Wakefields and, uh, of, of the world as well. And the, the, these people don't have to be imported. Now, there may need to be some form of support. More lately, my community development career has been around supporting people with, yeah. with some of their practice. So it could be around you know, risk assessments, it's around equalities, and, and you know, just making sure that those rough edges are polished off if, if and when they, they, they exist or occur. But they exist. Yeah. I'm actually thinking in Wales, and this isn't a podcast concerned with so many Wales, but I think in Wales, I think... They are there in abundance, yeah. As well, I think there are lots of communities. So I used to think that they were they were more in abundance in Wales than other places, and I realised that I was being a bit myopic in this. And then, and this is you know, this man's in the room. He said, "Come to Wakefield with IndieKeep, and you realise the same issues, the same strength is there. It's just not being enlivened. And you find these people because they're there. They're the people who turn up to things. They're the people who are interested in things. They're the people who." engage you in conversations they're not the people in my opinion who are just chasing grants and many these are people who are they're givers rather than takers and they're there at the moment we don't value them enough in society when we start to i think we'll start to see a huge or the state is trying to turn them into things that they're not and they're trying they then they then burden them with things around we'll get people into work this is the reason you run this podcast because you come up with these you that was perfectly put I don't want to appear negative in about the future of social capital in that uh, I'm a great believer in the phrase uh, the future's already here, it's just unevenly distributed. So really the challenge we have is that, that we live in a world where there are many, many problems but there are equally pockets of at the future of how things do with uh, communities, groups engaging, collaborating, coming together and creating a better world for themselves. And the challenge I really see is that we need to both invest and build the size and capacity of that gene pool of change makers. The good news is, as you say, they're already there, we've got tremendous assets. And it just requires really a reframing of how we see the world, how we see the concepts such as assets and outcomes, whether it's just solely about work or wider mm-hmm. benefits. Uh, so, you know, we're optimistic with, for example, ideas we've got for developing community ideas banks. We've shown for our project work in Barry that having an online platform doesn't work. However, blended technology, there's a definite role there. So we primarily offline, we connect people face-to-face, but then use the technology to make new connections, support capture asset capture connections. So there is grounds for optimism and a way forward, but it's optimism with very much a rolled-up sleeve of it's going to require a lot of work, determination, but I think we can get there. Yeah, yeah. 
General, I feel we've exceeded our allotted time. If not, we're about to. So I'm really grateful for your time and your input. So we've discussed social capital, sort of broken it down into its sort of threefold typology. I think contextualised it a lot, actually, in work, in terms of communities. Any number of new terms for me, Andy, to take away, so I'm grateful <laughs> for those. Even a Yiddish one, which I wasn't expecting. So anyone listening to this, if there's one thing they can do is to go and get a party started somewhere. So that would be a good indicator okay, for this sort of work, actually. Can I suggest a one thing to do? Okay. Okay, just as a... So I buy my turkey every year from the local butcher. Pay your £10 deposit and they give you a little step saying, please come back on the 23rd of December to pick up your turkey. And they always say, you don't come early, because if you come early, there'll be a big queue. Two things. One thing, can you walk instead of drive to go and get that turkey? Because on that walk to get that turkey it's a Saturday so you've got enough time to do it you'll meet you hopefully will meet people you've never met before use that as an enriching opportunity and go there when the queue's there and talk to people in the queue you won't have talked to them before it'll be fascinating it'll be interesting you may well meet people who are a bit bonkers you may meet people who are really nice you may meet people who you don't want to ever meet again but it'll be something that enriches you and we can all do it we're just about I know this is going out after Christmas damn do it next year yeah yeah hold that thought for 11 and a half months. <laughs> now, maybe a gauntlet thrown down for me to get it edited now by the 23rd. Is there anything you want to give a quick plug to finally? Really, just uh, it could be a smile, a, a small ask. The social capital revolution begins with a small step. I like that concept of the small ask. I was with somebody from Newport uh, recently who said, How can we get more volunteers into the community centre? So I said, Well, what do you need them to do? And he was only able to list three things. So I said, I think that's probably what often puts people. So just list it as people who can do. This, this, this. I was at Barrytown Football Club and I suppose two wrong questions that a meaningful support was we, uh, we need volunteers and anyone got any ideas and it's just the worst two questions in that context mm-hmm. but as you just say that uh, we need people just to do that leaflet then. and then the clever trick is do you really scale it down but then you notice the people who volunteer and the people who are more regular volunteer then you nurture that relationship mm-hmm. absolutely so once again thank you very much Dilke and Archie both best of luck with IndieCube and uh, future plans we'll put some links on the website that goes out with this as well to the myriad of different things that you've you've referenced a little bit of housekeeping go back and take a listen to the podcast we've done of late with Steve Skinner Leeds based community development practitioner who talks about very simply the building blocks to making strong communities very much articulates an equalities based approach to that Uh, to Chris Ashman as well down on the Isle of Wight uh, an exile from South Wales uh, director of Regeneration out there, but for whom community development has to be at the heart of what that activity entails. Has to not forget that it's about working with people and not doing things to them and, and looking at regeneration in a very physical context, recognising the social capital. We don't necessarily use the term hugely in that podcast, but it's definitely there in reference conceptually. Um, so take a listen back to those and there's a myriad of other ones as well. So until next time, gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you.